My guest is a legend of stage and screen. His 75-year career in show business includes creating the Vegas Lounge Act, booking the hottest Vegas talent, and working on variety shows with Dinah Shore and Judy Garland. He is most known for Rowan and Martin's Laughing and Real People, two inspirational and revolutionary television series. It is my honor to talk to Mr. George Schlatter. Well, that's that sounds pretty good. I'm impressed. <laughs> I don't know whether it's an honor, but let's hope it's fun. I hope so, too. You grew up listening to the radio, and who are your radio heroes, the person, people you listen to every week? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Easy Aces, do you remember that? Uh, Amos and Andy. Uh, oh, they were great radio shows. Fibber McGee and Molly they were great radio shows, and we used to sit and look at the radio. And uh, it was an art form that I wish we would continue with. And did you always want to be in show business? I think I'm in show business because I failed at everything. No, that's a lie. Uh, yeah, my mother was a concert violinist. My aunt was a concert pianist. And I grew up with music in the, in the house. And, uh, and the, uh, the knowledge that everything could be fixed if you could just laugh at it. And uh, we had a number of setbacks and we laughed our way through them until I finally wound up in the show business. And that's when you moved from Missouri to Vegas. Yeah. Well, Missouri. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine that? Missouri Valley College to uh, Las Vegas. And then Las Vegas and the, the Frontier Hotel, which was an adventure. And then Ciro's on the Sunset Strip. That was an adventure. And I was able to meet a lot of very interesting, exciting, and many funny people. And uh, that helped. I, I got, I'm happy because I get to finally wear my Sammy Davis Jr. shirt. Good it's for pictures you. of Sammy at all parts Good of his life. Oh, the adventures I had with that little rascal. I had great fun with him. He was a magical personality. You know, I read your book, and I loved it. And I loved when you talked about your wife. It's such a love story. Yes. It's a very special woman. A very, very special woman. Still looks great. And uh, uh, she was funny, too. She was outrageous, and she put up with a lot from me and then the other people that she worked with. I mean, she was Ernie Kovacs' uh, leading lady. And Ernie loved her because Jolene never asked him what they were going to do. She just showed up and did it and did some very, very funny stuff. And she worked on Gunsmoke and uh, ate a whole bunch of series. But uh, I think Ernie Kovacs was her favorite uh, uh, co-star. Are you involved with a documentary about Kovacs that's coming out? Am I involved with what? With that documentary about Ernie Kovacs that just came out? Uh, no, I, no, I'm not involved, but I'm sure that they use a lot. I would, see, I wasn't involved with Ernie other than as a friend and other than as an advocate because I used to uh, complain to Ernie that he never had a punchline. It was just vague and, and funny and wonderfully visual and whatever. But I kept trying to convince him, Ernie, you're so close. Just you, All you need is a punchline. And he said, no, I don't need a punchline. And one night he was shooting a show with Jolene. And he called me and he said, I want you to come over. It was like 11 o'clock at night and they were at ABC. So I raced over to ABC and Ernie was there with Jolene and a raised stage and a car on the stage. And he put his hand on the fender and the car went down through the floor. And he looked at me and he said, now, is that a punchline? Yeah, yeah, Ernie, that's, a, that's a punchline, all right. He was a wonderful man and he adored Jolene because she would just sit with him. There's some pictures of her with Ernie that I, I'm crazy about. So she was quite a... Quite a uh, uh, an interesting woman who uh, could have had a brilliant career, and uh, but she loved working with Ernie and didn't want to do a lot of other stuff. What would you say is your greatest talent? Would it be improvisation? What, Ernie? No, you. Oh, me? Uh, uh, 
fact that I can, everything I look at can be funnier. <laughs> and we're at a place in our evolution now where we, we not only need, we must laugh, because when you realize what's out there, going on out there politically and socially and economically, and we must laugh. All right? It's the only solution. Laughter is the best Novocaine in the world, and uh, laughter may be our answer. And uh, so that's why I'm devoting my, my few, few <laughs> remaining golden years to finding things that are funny and people that are funny. It's great. Um, can you tell a story about how you invented the uh, Las Vegas Lounge Act? Well, I was working at the Frontier in Vegas, and uh, uh, you, could have, you could have any kind of music, and it would be okay. But if they performed, if you could see the performing, you had to pay 20% tax. So there was nothing happened in Vegas after 12 o'clock at night because uh, you couldn't see anything. So there was an act called Mary Kay Trio that I was very friendly with, and I said, we'll put them in the lounge, and if I put a curtain up so you can't see them perform, but you can only hear them, then, then it would be okay and no 20% tax. So we did that, and then we, we announced that we are going to do comedy in the lounge, and Mary Kay Trio was the first comedy act working in the lounge. And then it became a tradition, I mean, where everybody wanted to do something after 12 and 1 o'clock. So from then on, Vegas was open until, in, you know, mid-morning. And uh, I, I am proud of the fact that the first performing act in the lounge that you could see was Mary Kay Trio, which were friends of mine. And uh, yeah, that that's that should be on my on my rock, <laughs> my stone should be. He also did the first performing act in the lounge. You worked as the executive producer of the Dinosaur Chevy Show. Yes, as the producer. Yeah, Henry Jaffe was the executive producer, <clears throat> and uh, actually the Dinosaur Show. I was booking all of the acts into the Frontier Hotel, so I knew all of the performers, all of the acts, and Dinah signed to do uh, an hour show. And she wanted to do more comedy. Well, I knew all of these acts. So I became the producer of the Dinosaur Show. And I was like in my early 20s. And I was the last one hired and the only one on the staff that was that age. And so we started bringing in more uh, performing, more comedy acts. And it became a problem because Dinah's, when you did an act that took four or five minutes, that meant that something else had to go. So it usually was one of Dinah's ballads that had to get cut. So Dinah and I got along real well until she realized that bringing me in to do a lot of comedy meant that she was going to lose a ballad. <laughs> yeah. But she was agreeable to it because we did some very, very funny things with her. She What a wonderful lady she was. I loved her. Did you ever work with Fat Jack Leonard? Sure, sure. And uh, you have a picture of Fat Jack Leonard? He made, a big, he made a big deal out of being fat, Fat Jack. And he had a hat that he would spin around and... Uh, he would do uh, some dance steps, and uh, his his main claim to fame was that he was fat. He was also funny, but uh, I had a good time with Jack. Yeah, I had a good time with a lot of those guys, Jack Leonard and, and Ernie Kovacs, and, and uh, <coughs> uh, there was a whole breed of them then that's different than the comics today. Uh, today, the comedians are not that visual, and they are uh, uh, monologists, and they're not talking about that many important issues, and I wish they were. So that's going to come, because now that, now that the barrier's off as far as what can be done and what can be said, I think there's going to be a whole rush of comedians talking about things rather than just doing uh, silly jokes and sex jokes and sex is about abortion and, and the things that uh, seem to be uh, dominating our focus comedically. 
And uh, there's a whole breed, a whole new generation of young, not even young, but funny people coming up that are frustrated because they have not had a window, they haven't had a, uh, a platform. And now I think you're going to see a resurgence of funny people and bright colors. When you watch television at night now, you see everything is dark and black and whatever. <coughs> black color, I don't mean subject matter, but uh, now with this surge, with this new freedom, with a new interest in comedy, I think you may see some bright colors and some comedians doing jokes about things other than sex. And, uh, I mean, sex is great. You know, uh, we did a thing once we said, sex, sex, sex. Sex is not the answer. Sex is the question. Yes is the answer. And, and from, there, from there, we just we just went on. And uh, um, But there's other subject matters. There's politics. I want to do a new show called uh, What's Next? And then open up all the unanswered questions that could be made funny. And uh, that's my next project, is to take political situations, social situations, this... Uh, um, whole thing that's going on today and, and having fun with it. Uh, so there's, there's a lot there's a lot of other subject matters than sex and things. I mean, politics and politics. Don't go beyond politics. How, what can be funnier than Donald Trump when you think about it, right? And that may be our only answer to Donald Trump is to laugh at him. Did you see the shot when Donald Trump was playing golf after he had diarrhea? Oh, yeah. Still one, yeah. Of, the, still one of the funniest shots on television. The rich field of possibilities out there to have fun and make fun. And we must, because maybe our only solution out of the uh, situation we're in politically and socially and economically will be to laugh, because laughter is its own uh, panacea, it's its own uh, uh, cure. <laughs> and uh, when we don't know what else to, when, you, when something hurts as bad as it can even ever hurt, the only thing is you do laugh. You think about it, when somebody's really in real pain, they go, oh my God, it hurts, and they, and they, they laugh at it. Uh, so I think my only solution to where we are politically, socially, and economically will be comedy, and uh, that may be what saves us. <laughs> oh, the the old-time comedy radio shows came after the Depression. Borscht Belt came right after the Holocaust, so I guess always was like that. So we have to laugh. I mean, uh, 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 radio was wonderful because you formed your own pictures, but then along came television, and te television became very verbal, and now it's verbal again. Visually, what you can do, uh, uh, the, the range of possibilities now with the new technology and the new cameras and the new imagery that you can do now uh, opens up a world of new possibilities of things to laugh at. I'll come up with something funny, uh, I'm sure, as soon as the interview is over. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love your story about Al Hurt. Well, again, again, see, comedy, comedy is so close to disaster. <clears throat> disaster is only about an inch and a half away from comedy. I, uh, I was signed to do a show about the Radio City Musical in, in the area around Rockefeller Center, and it was all booked and it needed to add one more act. So I said to Al Hurt, I want you to come to the uh, Rockefeller Center and I'll meet you on the corner. And Al Hurt weighed 300 pounds and he played great trumpet. And so I convinced Al Hurt we go up a step ladder <clears throat> to the 11th floor of the incomplete Sperry Rand building and he was gonna play South Rampart Street Parade with his band and uh, uh, and Al Hurt says, man, I'm, I'm, my mouth kept freezing to the trumpet, so we built a little fire there to keep his trumpet warm. <clears throat> and Al Hurt, with his 300-pound band and his band playing trumpet on the lip of the 11th floor of the Rockefeller Center, and we got one rehearsal done, and I turned around, and there was a guy lying down in the middle of our shot. 
And I said, how's he going to get out? They said, you can't move him. I said, why? He said, he's dead. I said, well, now you can move him. They said, you can't move him until the coroner comes to pronounce him dead. I said, look at him. The man is blue. He's not going anywhere. He's not healthy, this guy. And I've got to tape this because I only had a few minutes of light. So anyhow, we go ahead and Al Hurt's taping South Rampart Street Parade with his trumpet. And he says, man, I'm from New Orleans. We take this death thing seriously. I said, Al, he would have wanted it this way. So Al Hurt's playing South Rampart Street Parade became a very famous shot. And uh, uh, the next day we walked in and they were, uh, for, for the man from Chrysler arrived and he said, what, what is that? And you could see these two feet sticking up in the shot, right? I said, uh, they said, that's a body. They said, well, don't talk to Mr. Hurt about it. It will only upset him. So the next day we came in, but what, he, he wanted to see the shot. And in order to show it to him, I realized these two feet are sticking up in the middle of the South Rampart Parade. And so I put my arm up to cover the place where you could see his feet. <laughs> And he looked at the shot and okay, but when it went on the air, here's South Rampart Street Parade, 11th floor, it's almost sub-zero weather, Al Hurt's trumpet playing South Rampart Street Parade, and uh, this dead man lying in the shot. One of my more famous, uh, one of my more, more uh, um, unbelievably humorous and sad uh, adventures, but I have a few of those. <laughs> and uh, Al Hurt's famous for getting hit in the head with a brick during Mardi Gras. Yeah, yeah, and Al, Al Hurt said, man, he said, I'm from New Orleans. We take this stuff seriously. I said, well, I take stuff seriously. I take death seriously, too, unless I have you playing trumpet. And um, <laughs> Al Hurt and I want a very good friend. I want to talk about Laugh-In, which is an amazing show. I started I actually watched on Nick at Night in 1989. The reruns aired. And I was 11 years old, and I started wa watching it as a kid. Well, <clears throat> first of all, I don't think I was ever 11 years old. I think I was born in 19, but uh, uh, laughing, see, NBC had nothing to put on Monday night at 8 o'clock. They were opposite Gunsmoke and, and uh, Lucy, and they were getting no rating at all. So they said, uh, what could we do? And I, I said, well, I've got a show that will cost you nothing. It's just funny, and, and young character people that are not guest stars, as, as you would see guest stars, but young character people doing brief comedy thing, and my own attention span was minimal. Uh, which I just disproved with this story, by the way, but anyhow. So we <laughs> rounded up all of these young character people and put them into one show. And the network looked at that show and said, well, this isn't a television show. I said, well, you laughed, and, and the audience is funnier than you are. So anyhow, we put this show on with, with unknown people who were character people. But think about it, Lily Tomlin, Goldie Hawn, Judy Kahn, Ruth Buzzy, Joanne Worley, and Artie Johnson. These were all young character people that were not guest stars like variety shows were using guest stars. And they came on and nothing happened the first week. The network wasn't even going to air it. They said, this isn't a television show. This doesn't make any sense at all. I said, well, we took it to a school and they laughed and they're brighter than you are. And so anyhow, we put the show on the air and nothing happened. The network wasn't even going to air it because it did not, it was not a traditional variety show. But by the third week, the audience found it and got it started to get a huge rating. Well, you can imagine me that many years ago with a big rating. I was beyond confident. I was arrogant. I was <laughs> cocky. I was everything. And it, uh, it just captured the imagination of the country who was longing for something unusual, something different, something exciting, something visual. Somewhere, somewhat like we are right now, we want to see something happen visually, we want to see, hear something, we want to see bright colors and bright people. And it's the same situation existed in 1969 that you have today. You don't see, you don't see color now. And when we would do the joke wall, we would have these, these doorways open up and people would pop out of the doorways. 
Uh, it was unheard of, and, and who's behind that wall was a big question. We need something like that now that makes you joyful, that makes you laugh. Laughter is the panacea. It's the best uh, feel-good experience you can, well, the second best feel-good experience you can have. And I don't want to go into the first one because I'll get you canceled. <laughs> Any sense at all? Yes. Well, you can cut this, can't you, if I get too far off? I'm not going to cut anything that you say. Whoa. When I, so when I was watching it as a kid, you had the news of the future, and it, it was like 1988 President Ronald Reagan. Yeah. You yeah. accurately predicted that. Yes, yes, we did. Well, well it was a joke. His, his, one of the writers on the show was very close to Richard Nixon, and he said for the second season, he said, uh, I, I can get Nixon. I said, get him for me, too, because I wasn't a fan of Nixon, but he said, put him on the show. And so we brought him, we go over to the studio where he's taping a news conference, and he was beyond straight, you know. We said, Mr. Nixon, just say sock it to him. Sock it to me. No, Mr. Nixon kind of smiled and laughed. This comedy thing is new for me. Yeah, it sure is. So just say, and he said sock it to me. And we took it down the hall to the studio and put it in the next show. And it went on the air the following Monday night, and it exploded. People could not believe Richard Nixon doing comedy. And, uh, and it exploded, and that helped launch the show. Richard Nixon and, and uh, um, Ronald Reagan who, uh, when I worked in Vegas, I booked Ronald Reagan and a group called the Dick, the, the Dave, Dave Caldwell Five, anyhow. And uh, uh, he, they, Lou Wasserman called me and said, book Ronald Reagan into the Frontier Hotel. I said, Mr. Reagan, he doesn't do, Mr. Mr. Wasserman, he doesn't do anything. And Lou Wasserman, who was the emperor of television, said, that's not my problem. Book Ronald Reagan. So we booked Ronald Reagan into the Frontier Hotel with this act. And it was not good. It was kind of boring. And I remember that he'd done a movie with a chimpanzee called Bedtime for Bonzos. And so I find this act with five chimpanzees, and they become the opening act. But the problem is that they did an hour. They did 30 minutes, and Ronald Reagan did an hour and 15 minutes. So meant the show ran 15 minutes long. So they said, cut some time out of the chimps. I said, you can't. These are gorillas. You can't just say, hello, mate. Take five minutes out of the act. You're going to do the act. They're the same. And Ronald Reagan couldn't cut any time out of his act. So we did the first 15 minutes of the, <laughs> the gorillas in the hallway. Then we opened the door and they went out on the floor of, this, of the Frontier Hotel, which was okay, except when they got loose, these, these gorillas went crazy. They were in the lights, they were in the tables, one of them drank a bottle of tequila, and everything went crazy, but it was funny. And so Dick Kozlov said to me, tell them to just do that. I said, you can't just do that. These are gorillas. They're loose in the saloon. So then he said, well, tell the actor to cut 15 minutes. So we took 15 minutes out of Ronald Reagan's act, for which he never, he never forgave me. But the audience was pleased. And uh, I became very friendly with Nancy Reagan. But Ronald Reagan, when he became president, was never a big fan of mine because of the act of the gorillas that I'd booked to open for him. He was, he was okay, but he wasn't happy with me. Weren't those marquee chips... The one that were on the Ed Sullivan show? Yes, yes. They did a great act. But that's what they did. You couldn't cut it. You couldn't change it. You just did that act. And uh, uh, the problem was it ran 15 minutes. It meant the show ran 15 minutes too long. So they did the first part of the act in the hallway until they got loose and went out in the club and did it on under the nightclub floor. And it was crazy. When you say five gorillas loose in a saloon in Vegas, I mean, it was, it was funny. It really was funny, but uh, dangerous. And so that meant I had to cut 15 minutes out of Ronald Reagan's act.
for which he never really forgave me. I'm lucky I didn't get a tax rap. When you started the first couple of episodes of Laughing, Barbara Feldon was a guest a couple of yes. times. Well, Barbara was Feldon was, was so straight. She was a gorgeous model, and she was straight beyond straight. And uh, we put her on uh, and doing a very straight interview, and it was about, I think, her sex life or something, which she was very timid about discussing. But uh, Dan Rowan discussed it with her. And uh, and she was wonderful. Barbara Feldman was a trip. She was she was, she was so straight that she was funny. And she was gorgeous, and she had a good time. And all of those people that were straight came in to laugh in, and and enjoyed themselves so much that it became a, a, a playground for adults. Well, barely adults, but they were young. And I mean, when Goldie Hawn got confused, see, Goldie Hawn was probably one of the brightest women I ever worked with. But if you could get her attention. You could divert her attention, and she would crack up and laugh. And that laugh was worth a million dollars. That laugh bought my house in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and Judy and Lily Tomlin would come out of the dressing room every time with a new character. And uh, that uh, was, was rewarding. And before Lily Tomlin did the phone operator, when she goes out, she said, Lily, Lily, hold it. Don't go out yet. I said, when you dial the phone, dial with this finger. I said, don't give him the finger, but just dial with this finger, and we'll know what you're doing. And uh, nobody ever realized that Lily Tomlin was making those people uh, crazy because she, in fact, was giving them the phone when she was when Ernestine was calling them. I drink um, coffee. That's my problem. Okay, I've never had a sip of coffee in my life. Oh, you really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got to take you out. <laughs> Vodka, yes. Coffee, no. Okay. Judy Carnes' nipple was exposed on television in a park out in the Burbank, and then we were taping one thing at the one end of the park blackouts. At the other end of the park, we were taping inserts, and uh, Judy Kahn, who who was obsessed with taking her clothes off, and uh, so she took off her bra, and they put painted petals around her nipple, so it looked like a flower. And I went down, and I saw this thing, I said, guys, you can't do that. And they said, what, what? I don't tell me what. You know what it is. So anyhow, we had to shorten the shot, so it got shorter and shorter until the shot of Judy Kahn with the petals around her nipple was about two seconds. And when we ran it from NBC, NBC said, what's that? I said, I don't know. And we never did know until you could uh, shorten videotape to where you could still frame that. And then when, you re when they realized it was a nipple, uh, the show was such a big hit that they uh, allowed it to go on. But somewhere in the archives of NBC, you have a close-up shot of Judy Carnes' nipple, which is pretty cute still today, by the way. All of these things sound a little bit crazy. But they were, a, it was a, a playground for adults, and it was uh, using topical humor, using all of the political problems of the 60s and 70s into one montage, into one collection of things that made you laugh. Because you can make fun of anything, and we did. Uh, today, what I miss is having fun. Uh, um, I miss the, the adventure, and uh, there's, there's new rules, but I think... Uh, just being distasteful is not an answer. It's on the way to an answer. And uh, so we got away with a lot of stuff and broke a lot of ground, which, which uh, when those shows air today, I'm still proud of them because they were outrageous. They were bright colors and bright people and fast things and everything was uh, just minimal attention span, which kind of you know reflected my own minimal attention span, my own limited intellectual capacity. But uh, we had fun, and I don't see people today having as much fun as we did. Martin Short looks like he has a lot of fun. Marty Short, Marty Short, and oh, and Steve Martin, 
Marty Short is an adventure. Marty, we need more. I wish Marty Short had a litter, because uh, we need more. We need more of the comedy of Marty Short and, and Bill Marty Short and Bill Maher. Bill Maher is my favorite because Marty Short is one thing. Bill Maher is something else. Bill Maher is an adventure, and what he's talking about and what he's saying and his interest in in social issues and political issues. Bill Maher should be on every night, uh, uh, and I'm just trying to convince him to do a show about what's happening in the world today, because he is a great chronologically <laughs> aware person of what's happening today and saying things about it that's funny. Bill Maher, Marty Short, I wish they'd have a litter. <laughs> you, I noticed that you always had, and this is the 60s, African Americans in your class, sure. uh, uh, Teresa Graves, Byron Gilliam. Chelsea, Teresa Graves, well, yeah. And then Flip Wilson, we all of them. Uh, we broke the color barrier, so we knocked it down, destroyed it, and uh, we just put black people in just as we would white people, and uh, uh, there was a window open, and of course Sammy Davis, Sammy Davis was just an adventure, he was one of my dearest friends, and I knew him since he was very, very, very young, and uh, Sammy probably, we did great blackouts with Sammy and great scenes with Sammy, so one night we were doing a thing about uh, a judge, and uh, there was a, a comic used to do a thing in the courtroom. And so Sammy came in and he said, do you remember when he used to do Here Come the Judge? And Sammy came in with a white wig and a black robe and started doing Here Come the Judge. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. Sammy, we were doing judge courtroom bits. And Sammy came in, Here Come the Judge, Here Come the Judge. And we taped a bunch of those and put them in the next show. And the morning after the show aired, when the audience came into the Supreme Court, somebody in the back said, Here Come the Judge. And the Supreme Court got the biggest laugh they ever got up until maybe recently. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, but uh, <laughs> here come the judge swept the country, and uh, um, and this, as did Sammy. Sammy was perhaps one of the most talented uh, personalities I ever knew, worked with, met, heard of, and uh, he was an adventure, Sammy. I would agree, but he would always tell you Mickey Rooney's more talented. I don't buy it. Uh, different. First of all, Sammy used the black thing to his advantage. Mickey was funny. One of my first shows with Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland it was great, and he was funny. But he was he was uh, he was not a happy guy. Well, Sammy was. Sammy was joyous. Sammy walked in the room, and people just lit up and laughed. Uh, Mickey, Mickey, I had a lot of fun with Mickey, and I did with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. They sat down and told each other stories. When I did the good Judy Garland show, they wanted me to do with Judy Garland what I had done with Dinah Shore, and uh, I said, "But that's not Judy. Judy Garland's not Dinah Shore." So we we got a steamer trunk, and we filled it with all of her memorabilia. And Judy Garland would stand at this steamer trunk and tell stories. NBC wanted her to talk the way I'd done with Dinah, but that wasn't Judy. So Judy would stand there and tell great stories about her early beginning. And uh, one of the first guest stars was uh, Mickey Rooney. And the two of them sat and just told stories about when they grew up. That was not variety the way NBC wanted Judy Garland variety show to be. It was just entertaining and warm and fuzzy and, and, and riveting. And uh, um, and so I did five shows like that with Judy Garland, and then I was fired because they didn't want me to do the Judy. They wanted me to do the same thing with Judy Garland that I had done with Dinah Shore. I said, no, but Judy's different than Dinah. Judy is, you know, a whole different kind of container. And so uh, they, they, they fired me and brought in Norman Jewison. Norman Jewison looked at my five shows that I'd done in six weeks. Nobody thought Judy could do anything, you know, regularly. They just bought her for the announcement. But then we did these five shows in six weeks, 
Norman looked at those shows and said, these look great to me. <laughs> Norman went on doing what I had done, and I went on to New York to do another series. Mickey was a fun guy, though. He was, he was, you know, and then we did stuff with Teddy Rooney, his son. Anyway, I loved Mickey. I also noticed you always had a British comedian in the cast. Roddy Moore, Rockby, Jeremy Lloyd, and um, Richard Dawson. With all of those people, the the more they the more they didn't fit, the more they were, you know, uh, those people. Some of them were too tall, some of them were too loud, some of them were whatever. Uh, uh, the the flaw is what made them interesting, and uh, I think perhaps my own shady, shaky beginnings are what kept me alive in the show business. And uh, uh, so we'd look for that. We'd look for Fat Jack Leonard. We'd look for uh, uh, Marty Rove Roxby. He was he was a event and. And uh, Byron Allen, I saw a kid on The Tonight Show, 17 years old, Byron Allen doing a talk thing on The Tonight Show. He's charming. We didn't have any black and we didn't have any young. So we bring in Byron Allen, and he did like five shows, and it launched a career. He was the youngest performer like that on the air. And he went on to, now he owns the network. But uh, at that point, uh, it was kind of a, an adventure to have a 17-year-old co-host of a hot comedy show. And uh, he's great. He's doing really well. I may, I may hit him up for a loan. <laughs> I think he's a billionaire. Wow. Then I will hit him up for a loan. And I won't pay it back. <laughs> person I want to ask you about, because I, I really thought you were beautiful, uh, Pamela Rogers. Mm -hmm. An adventure. See, those women, instead of, instead of hiring one of those gorgeous women like Pamela Rogers or somebody, and having them do something else, just do what they did, and we would just put her on and have her do anything at all, and she was so fascinating to look at. You didn't care what she said, you know? And uh, and so it was a vis she was visually very exciting. I don't remember her being really very funny, but she was really exciting to look at, and it was part of my therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and then when the new laugh in, you had Robin Williams. Yes. Well, Robin, I saw Robin Williams on the streets in San Francisco. Nobody knew who he was, and he was barefoot, and he was wearing overalls and a straw hat, and had a fishing pole out with a line that went out over the audience. And he says, I'm fishing for assholes. And you're not supposed to say that, so take that out. Anyhow. No, but you can curse on, on podcast. You can? Oh, yeah. well, then yeah. fuck it. Let's go on. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, so Robin says, I'm fishing for assholes. So I went up and I said, Robin, you take a shower and come on in. I've got job for you and he's doing what i said just come out and talk to people so one of the first people he talked to was frank sinatra nobody had ever seen robin williams and robin walked out when sinatra was there and he said he touched me money just like he knew me <laughs> you know I, i'm so excited i could drop a log and sinatra almost fell down almost he said drop yep. a log and he loved robin well i loved robin and we would take robin when we never have a break to change sets or anything else we just send robin out to talk and he was, you know, he was a graduate of Juilliard School. And Juilliard, after his junior year, three years in Juilliard, the professor came to him and said, Robin, we don't want you to come back next year. He said, why? What did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. It's just that you're intimidating to everybody else. And he was so funny and so bright and so literate and so well-educated. And so when Robin walked out, the place exploded. Um, so he only did three years on laughing, but he was, God, he was funny. So literate and so well-educated and so bright. And he was having such fun, and he died too soon. Mm. You had uh, Lenny, Lenny Schultz. Lenny, well, that's go crazy Lenny. I mean, we would do, we, 
See, you did a little research, didn't you? We would, <coughs> Lenny Schultz was, was crazy. And, uh, um, but he was funny. And uh, he made up stuff. So when we had a break, when we would change sets or something, I'd say, go crazy, Lenny. And he would go out with weird things, weird costumes, weird props, real everything. And, and you saw this force field of energy devoted to being outrageous. And Lenny Schultz became a major part of that uh, first, second, third season of uh, New Laugh-Ins because uh, he was totally unique. I don't, think we ever, I don't think we ever had another Lenny Schultz. And I miss him. He was, he was a lot of fun. He was difficult to control because you never knew where he was going to do what he was going to do and where he was going to stand while he was doing it. And, uh, but I had a lot of fun with Lenny Schultz. The craziest thing about him is that whole time he was on Laughing, he was still a New York City uh, high school phys ed teacher. Yes, yes, and he had classes. And he was, he, he was, he had classes, he was a teacher. But uh, what the kids learned from Lenny, I don't know. I learned a lot from Lenny. I learned to be very careful where you stand. <laughs> he was funny, boy. We had a lot of fun with those people. When you think about those people, there was no other home for them other than laughing was a reciprocal, reciprocal for anybody with a crazy idea. And we took people and put them on laughing, and they exploded. And they became big stars overnight because laughing was such a big hit. And uh, uh, we, it then was like now. We needed something funny. We needed something to break the coil, to release the tension. And uh, that's what laughing did for one hour. Every Monday night. Hmm? We need a Tiny Tim right now. Oh, well, Tiny Tim was an adventure because nobody ever seen Tiny Tim. And he had, I mean, you ought to run a clip of Tiny Tim because he was crazy. And he had this little high voice, you know, the high voice. And uh, we put him out, Dick, Dan Rowan introduced him to Dick Martin. Dick Martin had never seen Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim came out with his hat and playing a ukulele, singing Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Whoa, right. And Dick Martin could not believe what he was looking at nor could anybody else. But within 10 days, Tiny Tim became a national a hero. And uh, he was crazy, but boy, it was just a, he was so weird and it, and it worked. And he was actually very, very bright when he sang Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Can you imagine how today, here we are in this year, saying that a big hit on television was a guy that was obviously deranged coming out singing Tiptoe Through the Tulips in a falsetto voice. And people would tune in Monday night by the millions to watch it. it. We're looking for something like that to happen now, and I don't see it. And Waylon Flowers and Madam was another person that you discovered. Oh, well, Waylon, Waylon, you can't describe Waylon Flowers. Um, Waylon Flowers was one of the first openly gay performers on television, and uh, he had a puppet, Madam, and he came out with Madam, and, and she, was, she was obviously a, a little old lady hand puppet. Uh, that was obviously weird and obviously uh, oversexed old lady, which right away, you know, brings a lot of things to imagination. <laughs> and Waylon would come out with Madam, and you just let him run, just, and just let him go. And when I put Waylon Flowers on and had Frank Sinatra in the audience, I thought Frank was going to lose it. He just could not believe Madam. And Madam loved Waylon. Madam loved Frank Sinatra, too and look to consummate that relationship, <laughs> which when you think about Waylon Flowers, who was openly rather effeminate, of having his hand up a puppet to approaching Frank Sinatra, right away the mind boggles with the comedic possibilities. How do you feel now that Turnout, the first two episodes came out? 
but was turned on. Oh. NBC wanted to do a show that was totally different and an adventure, and so I came in with a show that was all sound effects and, and a visualization of different effects and props and, and people and things popping on in and out, and it was it was an adventure. And uh, so we did the first show, and uh, some kind of a brain donor that uh, ran the station in Cleveland saw the show and wanted to keep Peyton Place on the air. So he said, we can't allow this show to go on. It was a wonderful show. Everybody just would flip when they saw it turn on. But he uh, had called all of the stations, and as the show came across the country, it was being canceled one station at a time. One of my most famous shows was Turn On. One station, one station at a time would cancel it. By the time it got to California, it was off the air. And uh, uh, we did two of them. And uh, the network, in order to pay me any of the money they owed me, because I had a commitment for 13 shows, and when they saw the pilot, it went to 17 shows. That's how good it was. <clears throat> but in order for me to get any money at all, I had to promise never to air it. So Turn On was locked up for 40, 50 years until somebody found it in a vault and then uh, put it on the air. Uh, and I think the first two episodes aired. And then we had shot. We It was so hot, they made us write eight episodes. And only two of them ever got on the air. But it was an adventure. It was sound effects. And it was all the new technology and the Moog synthesizer. It didn't have music as such. It had sound effects instead of music. I'm still proud of Turn On. And we, we may re-release Turn On because uh, it was... Uh, it was the, the biggest disaster in television and perhaps one of the most controversial and one of the most well-received now. When people look at it today, they say, what was the problem? It was just funny. And um, just funnier should be on my rock. When I, when I go take my dirt nap, I may put that on my tombstone. It was just funny. You know, find, find, find me a big laugh and put that on my tombstone. <laughs> they, uh, you did yeah, a lot of research, didn't you, young fella? Uh, we're going to put together some of the rest of the eight, because we wrote eight shows, and they were funny. And it was like uh, the third show wasn't as funny as the second show, because by then I was fascinated with the transitional uh, effects and the music and so forth. So I didn't devote enough attention to the jokes on the third show, because I was so enamored with the new technology and whatever. But when you see those shows put together now, you go, this was a great release. It was like therapy, you know, and... and Laughter is the best therapy in the world. If you can laugh, you can overcome anything, which uh, may be our answer for the political situation we're in right now. I'm not, I'm not going to go into politics because that's a problem. Boy, boy, am I tempted. <clears throat> boy, I mean, seriously, is the political arena now fruit for somebody to come out really and say a lot of things? Okay, but I won't. I'm your, I don't want you canceled, too. But anyway, uh, Turn On was an adventure of which I am enormously proud. Strangely enough, I'm very proud of laughing, I'm very proud of real people and some of the hits that I've had, but I'm also enormously proud of some of my disasters. And Because uh, when I dropped a bomb, boy, it was a biggie. But Turn On wasn't a bomb. Turn On was, was a very funny, very well-received, very exciting show, but uh, this idiot in Cleveland convinced everybody to cancel it. But, but when, they see, when they see the Turn On now, today, it looks like, what was the big problem? Because it still today is an adventure with the sound effects and mood synthesizer and, and uh, all kinds of sound effects instead of music. It was, it was, uh, it was, it's riveting today. Television today is like a nightlight. You know, you can sit in a room and it's over in the corner like a crazy ant that you hear from once in a while. But uh, tell it, but my biggest successes were shows that demanded your attention. We, was not, we were very intolerant of anybody with a short attention span. So 
I'm most proud of some of the shows I did that made you look at them, not just listen to them, but look at them. And uh, that was turn on when it airs again today. <laughs> you'll call me up and say, were you nuts or what? Yes, I was nuts. And I was enormously successfully nuts. But you were vindicated in the end. Well, vindicated, I don't know, in the end and any other body parts, but I was, I was gleeful, over, <laughs> gleeful over the success that we enjoyed 40 years later, but uh, right. we enjoyed it then. Well, actually, we enjoyed it then. People were curious about Turner. Why would somebody look up a show that was 50 years old and put it on the air proudly now? Because it was funny then, and it's funny now, and it's, it's, it's even an adventure now. See, you watch television. Television is not a nightlight. Television should be the focus of your attention, and it, it's not a babysitter, uh, unless you want your baby to grow up a little bit crazy. Uh, television should be used. Not just to entertain, not as a pacifier, but as a focal point of your attention. And uh, we're working on that. And one of my favorite things was that the credits started at the beginning of the show, the end credits. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And they ran through the show instead of at the end. Right. And uh, that also was a, a problem with the network. They said, you're running the credits. <clears throat> People think the show's over. Well, if they think the show's over after a minute, it's going to be the shortest show in history of television, which, by the, which, by the way, it became one of the shortest shows. But anything at all to attract your attention, um, uh, anything at all that, be, that demanded the focus of your attention intellectually and, and physically, you had to sit in front of your set and watch it. And if you turned away, you were aware that you were missing something. It may have been a joke or a pratfall or a sound effect or somebody falling through the, through the floor or a credit, but it demanded your attention. Now, television's kind of become, sadly, a nightlight. Television has been something that's another part of our environment rather than the focal part of our attention. And I may come back, I mean, if I were about 40 years younger, man, I would come back with an explosive, irreverent explosion of television because we're ready for it. I hope somebody will do it. Maybe my daughter Maria will do it. Albert Brooks was a writer on her. <laughs> yes. Yes, he was, and he was good, too. Uh, was that his first job? That was his first job, and I don't remember how I found Albert Brooks, but I did. And I brought him in, and uh, and he was funny. And he was on, he, I think he was on all the, uh, the turn-ons. Um, and, uh, and he was funny, and he's still funny. I think he was maybe even funnier then because we demanded that he break through the mold. And uh, uh, I haven't talked to Albert in a long time, but I may call him up and tell him to on over to the house and take a look at turn on because he was a baby see but people were all babies albert brooks and and byron allen and goldie hahn and lily tom they were all children at the time we did the show so they they had no fear of failure because they hadn't had enough success yet to be afraid to fail and uh but albert brooks was one of the ones i'm proud of is there any chance that we might see soul released well soul soul became a series of soul what happened was i went to the network and i said all of television is white. I would like to do one all-black show. And they said, well, I don't know whether you're going to do that, or what's going to happen. So we did this show, and we wound it up Red Fox. You couldn't put Red Fox on television because his reputation was that he was always dirty. Well, what I did is I said, I'm going to tape with Red Fox, and we taped an hour. And if I used five minutes, it was fine. But that five minutes was funny because Red Fox had never been on network television. We had Red Fox interviewed by Slappy White, and he interviewed Red Fox as the first first African-American president and interviewed by Red Fox. And, uh, uh, and it was funny. And he said, why, why are all the people in your cabinet uh, black? 
They said, ain't no white people owe me money. And so Red Fox did, what do you wish for the Grand Wizard? And Red Fox, I had to run it for you because Red Fox said, I wish for the Grand Wizard a five-car parade uh, in, 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 in uh, south, uh, down south in Atlanta with a five-car parade with no survivors. And uh, uh, anyhow, it was a whole thing that he wished for the Grand Wizard. And uh, that, that got on the air, barely. But everybody was in shock. But when they saw this all-black show, he realized how much fun they were having, how much more fun they were having with that than we were having with an all-white show. And uh, so they then decided this was a big hit. So, but they, they, this is part of the adventure. Uh, NBC would not put it on the air as a series. And I said, why? This is great. Red Fox and all He said, because if they put it on the air as a series, they could never cancel it. So I said, and you really want to hear a stupid answer. You put it, won't put it on the air because it would be such a hit you couldn't cancel it. Anyhow, they didn't. So I sent it over to uh, Don, Don uh, Rio and uh, um, the Wayan Brothers. And it became uh, especially the thing they did, uh, the Wayan Brothers series. And uh, it went on to become very, very successful. Anytime, anytime you break the mold, anytime you, you surprise people, anytime you do what they don't expect or what they haven't seen or what they are, are, are com comfortable with, uh, great humor and excitement comes from the audience not being comfortable, which I've just proven in our little interview. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, that's the most one of the most requested pieces of lost television in Seoul. Um, and it was all black performers, and it was... Uh, um, uh, Greg Hines and uh, did a whole tap dance, and we got Sammy Davis was there, and Sammy Davis was actually dying of throat cancer and, and whatever, and so uh, Greg Hines came out and did a tap dance. Greg Hines was a brilliant tap dancer, and uh, he went over and, and danced for Sammy. I said, now you go over and I put Sammy Davis's shoes under the chair, so when you finish, you go over and give him his shoes. He said, I can't. Sammy told me he doesn't want to get up. I said, Sammy is already up. You go over, I'm going to come up. So anyway, you see, when you see Soul, you see Greg Hines doing his dap dance, and then starting off stage, and he sees me, and he goes back on stage and does some more, and then he goes down and gives Sammy the red shoes. When, Sam, when the audience saw those shoes coming out from under the chair, they realized Sammy Davis, dying of throat cancer, was going to dance. And when Sammy got up, he said to uh, Greg Hines, uh, what do you want to do? And, and Sammy Davis says, make it easy on yourself. And Sammy Davis got up with throat cancer and did about a three, four minute routine challenge dance with Greg Hines, which was unheard of. And, and nobody would ever have expected it or accepted it. And they, two of them did a challenge tap dance. And after that, Sammy went, uh, Greg Hines fell down on his knees and kissed Sammy's shoes. It's one of the highlights of my whole career was Greg Hines and Sammy Davis on Soul. And the audience went nuts. Sammy was a good guy, had a lot of fun. And Greg was good, too. Speak up, America. Oh, boy. You what was Marjo Gortner like? like? Well, Marjo, Marjo was the next preacher. And uh, uh, Marjo, Marjo was a Bible-thumping, evangelical preacher. And so we did a show where he would come out and he would speak up, America. We took controversial issues and went out in the field and we interviewed people about speaking up and asked them to speak up on controversial issues. And it was great, man, because came out on stage and they did Speak Up America with Jane Kennedy, who was gorgeous. Yeah. And Marjo came out and we would get people out in the field talking about controversial, explosive issues. And we would say, now, Speak Up America. And we had people irate over trivia and irate over important issues, too. But at that point, the news would talk about things, but nowhere did the public have a way of communicating back. Well, Speak Up America 
captured the audience and had them uh, on camera uh, doing a speak up. And uh, oh, and it, again, again, it was controversial. It was uh, it was explosive. It was the censors went crazy over giving a voice to people. They didn't know what they were going to say. Well, I didn't care what they were going to say. I just wanted to hear what they were going to say, and they did. And Speak Up America is another, another one of my marginal hits, of which I am enormously proud. But Speak Up America became Speak Up America, and uh, we went all over the country talking to people, north, south, everywhere, and they had a lot to say, as they do now. See, unfortunately now, the Speak Up America philosophy is one and two sentences. They don't let people really express themselves, and they should, because they need a voice. And uh, um, you do some of that, you know. You, I don't know whether anybody's going to watch this, but uh, the idea of giving a voice to people who are not heard from is vitally important to our society, not just to our entertainment. So. I'd like to have on people whose work I admired for my life, for my whole life, and that's that's you. Well, that's a compliment. I like it because you're a bright fellow. By the way, I've enjoyed this chat, but it's more than a chat. I'm afraid I've rambled on a bit. I'm sorry. You have not. Well, I didn't get us arrested anyway. <laughs> I just want a couple couple of questions about the American Comedy Awards. And, yes. and be, but one of my favorite bits, George Carlin talking about when he was put in the Comedy Hall of Fame. Yes. He said, when George called me the first time, he said, really, an award show for people whose job it is to make fun of things and ridicule others? And then the next year, he put me in the Hall of Fame, and I said, what a great idea. What a great idea and what an That's interesting right. concept. Well, he was, he was, George Carlin was, uh, was vitally important to our education and to our survival because he said things. And see, the, the, the humorist, the, the uh, comic, in the right frame of mind, can make us aware while we're laughing and make us comfortable while we're uncomfortable. Carlin was a master of that. And uh, uh, he also was a master of the language. He, he did things with the language that is still today unheard of. And, uh, but I enjoyed my time with George Carlin a lot. And I, I put him on uh, this whole new show again, an adventure with George. And George came out and would talk and the audience was sat there stunned because his vocabulary was just so vast and his sentence structure was so perfect that you were impressed educationally as well as humorously. So George Carlin was a real trip. I'm sure you don't remember this because I was just watching it the other night when he he got an award at the American Comedy Awards and yes. he thanked Jolene yeah. for measuring his inseam. Yes, yes, she did. But that. not by choice. Yes, no, well, she, she did, Jolene. Jolene, I think that maybe is the only inseam she ever measured. And it, and she was not impressed, by the way. Uh, but he, he loved the idea that Jolene had taken a tape measure into places that no one had ever been before. And uh, I just thought that was an inside joke. I didn't know that was a real thing that happened. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Anything, anything you hear about Jolene probably happened, and she probably denied it. But uh, George Carlin... George Conlon, I mean, just to sit at a table with George Conlon was a thrill, but to watch him on stage, his sentence structure and his construction, his education of topical issues and language was awesome, and I, I miss him desperately. And his daughter now is doing some good things. Yeah, I actually got to see him five times on stage. Every time he had a new uh, special one, I went to see him. He was a rare 
See, when he started out on the Smothers Brothers show doing the hippy-dippy weatherman, and he was kind of a hippie, cool guy, a guy that you think maybe was a little bit high, and he went on from there to become maybe one of the most brilliant monologists and humorists and philosophers that we've ever had. And uh, he died much too young, but boy, was he exciting to listen to. And anybody who, anybody who has a half a brain should find a George Carlin video and take a look at it because it's not only amusing, not only hysterically funny, but it's educational as well. Yeah. And uh, I, I miss him. He was a good friend. And anytime, anytime I needed George Carlin, he'd be there in a minute. And boy, was he funny. And he'd walk into the room, and the room got exciting because you knew you were going to hear something you hadn't heard before in a different way than you'd ever been exposed to. He was brilliant. He was one of my favorites, George Carlin. And the last person who I love that you worked with, his last television appearance, I think, George Burns. Oh. With Sharon Stone. George Burns. George Burns did one of my first shows with Dinah Show when I was just starting out. And I was, Dinah had hired me because I had done Vegas and I knew performers. And so it was, but George Burns came in as the first guest star. And uh, uh, I was totally kind of intimidated by George Burns. But, while I was doing the show, he would stand beside me and say, uh, why don't you suggest that Dinah do? And I would just come up with these suggestions. They thought I was a genius, right? So I became very well, well connected with Dinah Shore because of George Burns' suggestions. So uh, when we were through, we were sitting over on the side in the big chair, and everyone, everybody went over and paid homage to George. And they almost bowed, George Hunt, George Burns, George Burns. And I don't know why, but when I walked over to George Burns, everybody was gone. I said, hi, Mr. Burns, George Slaughter, don't get up. <laughs> this guy, 100 years old, and this smart ass telling him, don't to get up. <laughs> and I said, Mr. Burns, George Slaughter, don't get up. And uh, it was our relationship from there became even better and better because I suggested that he not get up, showing respect for this young, upstart, rebel, loudmouth. Uh, he was he was a delight. Boy, was he bright. Ugh. Was was he a guest on the new Bill Cosby show? He may have been. He should have been. If he wasn't, he should have been because he added class. And uh, uh, see, because George was not funny. Gracie was funny. George was George was uh, go on Gracie, and he he framed Gracie's presentation in a way where she scored all the time. George George was thought funny, and George was funny, but he used his humor to make Gracie funny. Uh, but the only time I really ever saw him totally break up is when I said, George Slaughter, please don't get up. <laughs> and I know <laughs> nobody, nobody had ever shown that kind of respect for him. And he laughed. And we laughed about it. Can I get up now? Jack Benny was another one. Jack Benny was another one. And uh, um, Jack Benny, we asked him to do laughing. And laughing, if you, if you remembered it all, was all these short bits, vital, intense, but, you know, outrageous, quick, fast, fast. And we booked Jack Benny on the show, and everybody says, keep it fast, Mr. Benny, keep it up, keep it up, Mr. Benny, keep it up, keep it up, Mr. Benny, keep it up. And to tell Jack Benny to keep it up, you know, he said, don't wait, Mr. Benny, keep going, keep going. And so he said, at one point we had a break, and he said, Goldie, what do you say after the show, you and I get together and we go out and have a little dinner and a couple of drinks? And fool around, and Goldie said, well, I don't see any harm in that. And Jack Benny said, oh, I wish you could. Well, <laughs> it was the only horny statement ever made by Jack Benny, but he he, he always loved the fact that he had pitched <laughs> an encounter with Goldie Hawn, which when everybody wanted to do something naughty to Goldie. But she was this cute, clean-cut, 
cute, adorable child. And uh, she came in and uh, we painted words all over her little body. And that was the network was always concerned with what words we painted on. Goldie was in a bikini and we would paint words all over her body. The network was very concerned with what the words were. And once we assured them there was nothing the matter with the words, they then got petrified over where we would put the words on her. And Goldie would stay in there in this little bikini, this child who was just, she's still adorable. I don't know how old she is now, but she's still adorable. But at that point, she was such an innocent. And uh, everybody wanted to work with Goldie. And uh, she, was, she was just adorable. And she became a huge star, won an Academy Award and everything. And I still love her. Thank you very much, Mr. Slaughter, for taking time to talk with me. I hope you got something out of here you can use. Oh, this is great. Well, no, no. it was fun. Nice to be here. Good luck, and I hope you can. I hope you can make a comeback after this airs. <laughs> <laughs> I just got 